Good morning and welcome. Thank you, worship team. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings 13, or use page 302 in our Bibles here in the room. In November of 2020, a convenience store in Norwalk, California, sold a winning $26 million lottery ticket. But in the 180 days allowed, it was never claimed, and so it just went back into the the pool or back to the education system or wherever they put it. The reason it hit the national news is because a woman claimed that she had the ticket, but that she had stuffed it into her pants pocket and thrown the pants into the wash and destroyed the ticket. And it actually has a lot of credibility because the surveillance video shows a woman, probably her, buying that ticket at that time. But the rules say that you have to either have the ticket or photos of both sides of the ticket to be able to claim it. So this dear lady now lives the rest of her life knowing that she missed out on $26 million. Our passage today is about two kings in Israel, a father and a son, who both miss out on God's vast goodness. They had opportunities that they squandered to draw from the truest of blessings from Almighty God. And and for us, I think today, uh, we need to know two things as we study this chapter. One, God is eager to show us his goodness. But secondly, we can easily miss out depending on how we respond to him. So let's uh, begin reading here in chapter 13. Uh, A whole list of names, we'll try to sort them out and clarify them uh, after we read these first three verses. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah... Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he, that's God, kept them under the power of Haziel, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. So when we read 2 Kings, especially in the next number of months, we're going to see kind of a flurry of the kings of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And, and the writer always kind of gives us the perspective, you know, this was, they're overlapping to the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And so we need to kind of sort this out a little bit. And it doesn't help that every name starts with J and they all sound very familiar, right? So here's a little bit of, a, of an overview here. We're talking about the nation of the kingdom of Israel within the, the overall nation of God's people. We're talking about Israel, and these are our two kings, Jehoahaz, then Jehoash. And for some of your Bibles, it says Joash, because that's really the same name. And then uh, if you remember from last two weeks, we were studying Joash. It's a different Joash who was the king at the same time, the seven-year-old king who ended badly in the previous chapter. So just to keep things confusing, there's a couple of Joashes and Jehoahazes and so forth. 
But uh, these are the two kings, the father and the son, and the father of Jehoahaz was Jehu. He was that wild uh, chariot driver that uh, God anointed as king to do the purge of Israel, of all of Ahab's relatives. Um, So the battle or the, the international situation at this time was that they were fighting against, it says, Haziel and Ben-Hadad of Aram, or some Bibles say Syria, same nation. And then just for our reference, this is the only map we're using today, uh, later on, clear at the end of the passage, we'll be seeing there's also kind of an ongoing conflict with Moab uh, down there. So what about this King Jehoahaz? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, No surprise, because all the kings of the northern kingdom were evil or described that way, although occasionally, like this one today, there are moments where they seek the Lord, which is interesting. But he followed in the sins of Jeroboam. Uh, That's that's the hundred-year history of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam was the king who split the kingdom in two. He's the one we've talked about that set up those two golden calves and told his people, the ten tribes of Israel, don't go down to Jerusalem to worship. You know, that's the other side. Worship the golden calves I have set up for you. Um, The Lord responded with anger. The Lord's anger, it says, burned. One thing we discovered today in our study is frequent references to the emotions of God. See, God made us in his image. He has emotions. We have emotions. God's anger and his, his compassion and his love are always done perfectly. Ours are not, for sure. But the Lord's anger, he feels that rejection. And so it says it angered him. The word anger, actually, in the Hebrew language is the word nose. I think it's because of an association that sometimes our nose turns red. Anybody guilty of that? Your nose turns red when you're really angry. But uh, So the Lord's anger, it's like you could see it in his face if you could see his face. Why was he angry? Because his people had replaced him with golden calves, idols. How could that be? We've talked about this before. It's that the people thought that the golden calves could bring them prosperity. So the real idol was their materialistic desires, and they were mastered by the pursuit of wealth. Reminds us of Jesus, Matthew 6 said, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, so be careful who your master is. Well, it angered God to be replaced by this other master. So the discipline of the Lord, verse 3, is that he kept them under the power of of this enemy nation, Aram. See, God controls all international events, uses them according to his plan. And what God did here was not being vindictive to his people. He was trying to get his people's attention. That's what discipline is about, always. Turns out it worked. Verse 4. Then Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favor. Literally, the Hebrew says, sought the Lord's face. And the Lord listened to him, for he, that's God, saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes or tents as they had before. 
So there's a remarkable response of God. So we saw God's anger. Now we see the other side of his emotions. We see God's compassion. He saw his people suffering. And he says, I want to relieve that. It's like, it's like any good parent that knows he must discipline. So you long to be able to relieve and release our child, child from that discipline. How did this happen? It's because Jehovah has, and we don't hear anything else good about him ever. But at this moment, Jehovah has sought the face of the Lord. So it's like he understood God's purpose for the discipline, and he sought the face of the Lord. There's a phrase when our kids are little that I must have used a thousand times, where if, I, if, I, if we needed to uh, talk to one of our kids, confronting or rebuking or something like that, correcting something, we would, I would often say, look in my eyes. Look in my eyes, because there's something about looking eye to eye that they hopefully would see, A, dad is serious, and B, I care. God was giving that look <laughs> to the people, and he says, you're under my discipline. And Jehovah has sought the face of, the God, so, of God. So, so he got their attention. And in fact, then the Lord listened to him. Because he saw, he cared, he showed compassion. And like a good parent, compassion is there. He gave them a savior or deliverer. We have to kind of guess. It doesn't say here who that deliverer was. Uh, many think that it was uh, another enemy, a, the rising emperor, empire of Assyria with an A, who invaded Aram about them. If so, God was using an enemy of Israel's enemy to actually be Israel's relief. Notice that God was eager to be good to them. And we even see the result. People get to move back to their homes. It seems that this reference to going back, being able to live in their own homes, refers to people on the border of Israel, between Israel and Aram. You can imagine, like, like in Ukraine, so many refugees. But now that the conflict was over, and, and Israel was winning, and God sent them a deliverer, they were able to, the refugees are able to go back to their, their homes. So things are good. God was eager to be good to them. But does the story end well? Verse 6. But they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like dust at thrashing time. So... We kind of go, seriously? God disciplined you, and, and you responded for that moment, but then you just keep on sinning. The capital city of Samaria still featured Asherah, the provocative statues of this female goddess of fertility and prosperity. Those who followed Asherah were drawn again by the hope of material gain, but also following their immoral lusts. Satan is very unoriginal, still greed, still lust, is what seems to conquer people spiritually the most. Unbridled materialism, 
brazen immorality is, is all over still. So Israel and its kings are in like a, a crazy cycle of sin. They sin, God disciplines, they call out for mercy, he shows them mercy and compassion, and they go right back to their sin. Hebrews 12 talks about discipline for us as believers in our life today, New Testament. And Hebrews 12.10 says that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. In other words, whenever God allows discipline in our life when it's for sin, his intent is that we would grow more like him, which is holy. How is that working for him in our lives? Do we respond to his discipline? Does he get our attention? Do we seek his face? And is there growth? Is there, is there lasting change on the things that he speaks to us about? Because otherwise, we'll just keep going in the crazy cycle. Solomon wrote uh, in the Proverbs quite graphically, as a dog returns to his vomit, a fool returns to his folly. What a graphic way of talking about these cycles that we find ourselves in. Are we scorning the grace of God? That's what Jehoahaz did. He scorned the grace of God. He got the grace of God and then it's like not interested in continuing that way. So how are you addressing maybe greed issues, lust issues, anger issues, how you treat certain people, attitude issues? You know, is, does God see you making progress in your sanctification. He knows there's no switch to flip and we become sinless, perfect people. But he disciplines us for our good that we would become more holy. Does he smile at our progress? Or are we scorning his grace? This this week I came across a a story about someone scorning grace. It's a 200-year-old book that it came out of, and I don't know how to verify if it's a true story or not, but the point is clear. A mother and a daughter labored as slaves under the same master on some island in the Indian Ocean. And the mother so longed for her daughter to someday be free that she began to save away every bit of money she could earn legitimately someplace. Because she wanted to be able to see her daughter someday walking free and wearing shoes. Because the indication of slavery in that culture was that you were required to be barefoot, and the other was you had to rise in the presence of others uh, who were free. Eventually, the mother was able to get enough money together, bought her daughter's freedom. Shortly after, the mother walked into a room where her daughter was sitting and sat down beside her and greeted her affectionately. And according to the story, the daughter said to her in a rage, How dare you sit in my presence? I am a free woman and you are a slave. Rise instantly and leave the room. As we feel the hurt of that story, is that how Israel felt? When he so constantly would hear the pleas for mercy and would would send the deliverer and they'd be right back at it. When we scorn God's grace, have we thought about how he feels. Just being mature 
Christians, do we think about the relationship with God that we have? Well, that's his story, sadly. And then verse 8 and 9 have kind of like the routine wrap-up of the kings. Other things are written in other books, and he died. Well, how about his son? From Jehoahaz to Jehoash, or Joash, your Bible may say. Uh, we find this more of the same, but with some fascinating uh, events that are connected to Elisha, the prophet that we have been following along the way. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, south, Jehoash, or Joash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria. That's the capital in the north. And he reigned 16 years. And guess what? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. So it is same song, I don't know which verse. But he also loved the golden calves of ancient Jeroboam. In fact, um, if if you look in verse 13, he named his son Jeroboam. So, Jeroboam 2. When you name your son after the original sinner of the national sin, it probably tells you something of your character. And then verse 12, though, other ways are saying that same wrap-up of, uh, he, you can find out more of his story elsewhere, and he died. But that's not the end of what the writer of 2 Kings tells us. Not the end of the story because he now tells us some things that happened that are connected because Elisha was a contemporary of this Jehoash. In fact, it's now Elisha's dying days, verse 14. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So in some way, Jehoash is saddened. He comes to grieve or at least to pay his respects. My father, my father, he saw him as some kind of a spiritual leader, which of course Elisha had been for actually it was 50 plus years, this uh, leadership spiritually of Elisha in the land. Every king knew of, of Elisha's ministry. Chapters 2 through 9, we have been, been tracing all the many miracles of Elisha that he did on behalf of individuals and, and, and in the presence of things that kings knew about. In fact, as Elisha comes to the point of death, we find two more miracles in this last part of the chapter. Why does Jehoash describe Elisha as the chariots and horsemen of Israel? If you were with us, Back in chapter 2, we find that that's exactly what Elisha called his predecessor Elijah, as Elijah was the one taken up to heaven apart from death, you know, chariot of fire. And, and Elisha said, Oh, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, which is basically a way of saying, it seems, it's a way of saying that, Elijah, you, you are like God's one man army. And indeed, Elijah had like single-handedly faced all the, the opponents on the side of Baal at that, at that Mount Carmel showdown. And he called down fire and, and defeated Baal worship. And, and he was like God's one-man army. And then following that, Elisha became God's one-man army. In fact, in a very real physical 
sense back in chapters 6 and 7, Elisha single-handedly defeats Aram, you could say. Of course, it was God. But he was in the city of Dothan, and Dothan was surrounded by the army of the, Assy- the, Assy- the Syrians. And, and, and uh, we found that there was, first of all, there was an angel army that was watching over. And then we saw that God blinded the eyes of this entire army. And uh, Elisha goes and says, here, let me lead you. And he leads them right in the middle of the city where they could have slaughtered them. But instead, Elisha feeds them and sends them home. Chariots and horsemen. I mean, Elisha was the total package of relying on God's power for victory. His, his miracles were legendary, and now King jo, Jehoash is, 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 is grieving that. Maybe because, you know, he was like the king's ace in the hole in case of nothing else works, so go, go talk to the prophet Elisha. Or maybe he, in some sense, really uh, respected him for representing God. We don't know. Well, Jehoash did not realize that in Elisha's dying days, Elisha was going to offer the king one final amazing flurry of miracles. The first one was entirely free. Verse 15. Elisha said, so picture Elisha, he's really on his deathbed. Elisha said to the king, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hand. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. There's a battle coming. And, and, And... This promise comes out of nowhere. Jehoash didn't pray or seek the Lord's face, even like his dad did. He did nothing. And God just handed it to him on a platter and says, here's my goodness to you out of nothing but grace. We all kind of realize that God gets our attention with discipline, right? That's kind of a normal thing. Do you know that sometimes God gets our attention with blessing? Just like we like to get our kids' attention sometimes with, with just blessing them out of nowhere. He says, I'm going to give this one to you. God gets so much blame for hard things and so little credit for the way he so often spoils us. Here's a great big victory for you, Jehoash, in spite of your idolatry. Go figure that. Do you ever get some of those good surprises from God that clearly don't reflect your present spiritual state? How lucky could you be, right? No, we're God's children. There is no luck involved. He, he is watching us as his kids so closely that when something surprisingly good happens, you can be sure of this. It's him. It's him. Elisha's hands, they shoot the arrow. This, this, this object lesson should have convinced Jehoash of two things. One is the character of God. God is good. Second is, I should really listen to whatever Elisha says next. Verse 18. See how that works. 
Then he said, verse 18, take the arrows, and the king took them. I'm picturing a bundle of arrows. Strike the ground. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. The man of God, Elisha, was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram, completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Now we read that and kind of want to give the king a pass because how is Jehovah supposed to know when he just said strike the ground how many times he should strike it? But it, it does say, your Bible says, doesn't it? He stopped. That detail is there to tell us that there's something somehow Jehoash bears the responsibility for stopping too soon. Was he, I think if we'd have been in the room, we'd have seen some, some kind of detached indifference, maybe unimpressed by uh, Elisha's first promise. Did he, did he think it was silly to do this? Did he, did he not really believe God would give him this victory? Because he's not been a guy that's really in relationship with God, did he just not care about his nation that much? I don't know. But I almost imagine Jehoash with this bundle of arrows, kind of, okay, I'll patronize the dying old guy, kind of tapping the ground, not realizing that he had just stuffed a lottery ticket into his pocket, thrown it into that hot, gushing water and destroying what he could have had. He could have ended the threat of their longtime enemy and rendered them powerless forever. Instead, about 50, 60, 70 years later, we still find Aram, a national force, especially against Judah, their southern brothers. Second Chronicles 28. Joash could have been used by God to do something outstanding, something that would be a highlight in our study of kings. That finally there's a king in the northern kingdom that really relies on and trusts and walks with God. He either didn't trust enough, didn't care enough, but he forfeited that privilege. I think when you talk about unclaimed promises, unclaimed goodness that we might experience, things that God wants to do for us that are amazing, that sometimes we just kind of tap the ground a little bit nonchalantly and never claim. One is his promises to do something in us spiritually, and the other is to what God wants to do through us spiritually. What does God want to do in us? He wants to give us spiritual victories. Are there a lot of unclaimed spiritual victories? 2 Peter 1, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God is so good that he says, I want to give every one of my children everything they need to live a godly life. So we, were, we can never use the excuse that we just don't have what it takes to live godly, can we? Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, those promises, you may actually participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 
He's saying, you don't have to be like them. We don't have to be like our culture, consumed and controlled and mastered by evil desires. Instead, we can participate in the divine nature. How can that be? It's because as believers in Christ today, we have the Holy Spirit living within us who produces Holy Spirit characteristics, godly characteristics. We can live radically different. Does that just happen? The next verses. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith these traits, goodness, self-control, perseverance, love. I've just picked those out of the following passage. So this has to be our effort, our goal, that, it, that we want to participate in the divine nature because he has provided everything we need to live a transformed godly life. How sad would it be if 10, 20 years more would go on and we never really dealt with our self-control issues to have victory over temptations, to have victory over our addictions? How sad would it be if we, we never focused on persevering, but we just kept going to pieces one crisis after the next? How sad would it be if we never really explored what it meant and what it could be like if we showed a true love, a true care, as if we were the other person showing selfless love and not holding on to bitterness and resentment. How, how, how transforming could that be? God has handed us all the arrows we need. And so either we don't trust God enough or we don't want it enough to trust God, to get help, to be in his word. But he's handed us everything we need for godliness. So there are probably a lot of unclaimed spiritual victories. I think we'd all have to raise our hands to that. There are also unused spiritual gifts. That is not only what can God do in us, but what can he do through us. Because if he is doing something in us that's authentic, it's going to leak it's going to affect other people around us, okay? He does that through spiritual gifts. First Peter, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That's a radical, amazing statement. God has given you some spiritual gift, that's some spiritual capacity to have an impact in somebody else's life. But you have to put it to use. That's on us. Because we are stewards of God's grace. So stewards means that we're managing something that God has given us, and we're responsible for how we manage and use it. So he says, he just kind of breaks the spiritual gift thing into two categories. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. In other words, it's not us. But so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So it's not, don't use your gifts so you can be recognized for it because it's a gift. God gave it to you. And then there's other passages like Romans 12 that gives us a list of what some of those things might be. Things like uh, serving, leading, showing mercy, teaching, encouragement, giving, where things that we probably all have to do if we are obedient Christians, but there are special capacities that some are, that you have the ability to do that better than others, Okay. No one, no one has missed out on, oops, God forgot to give them a gift. 
So the real question is, am I a faithful steward of God's gifts to me so that I can dispense God's grace to others? So what's supposed to happen is we're supposed to, to take, think of those gifts like, a, like a clutching those arrows and beat the ground in, with, with anticipation that God is going to energize me and empower me with all of my weaknesses, all of my insecurities, all of my, all of my excuses, and I can use you in a powerful way. We have to put it to use. Um, for the rest of 2022, let's just kind of take a section of time. Do you want that? Do you want to be able to start and finish whatever God is wanting to empower you to do in this journey of working in you and then through you for the rest of this year? Just trust me for a moment, hopefully, to, to graciously uh, be direct. I love to see us gather in this room. This, you wouldn't be here if your relationship to God was not a higher top priority to you. I really believe that. Who comes to sing worship songs and listen to a guy talk about the Bible if you don't care about God? You do. But between the first song and the last song in this room, you probably aren't doing that. Okay? This, this is worship and the word time. And it is foundational to your walk with God. I, hope, I think we all know that. This is where we're going to grow that confidence in God. We speak to Him in, in song and prayer. He speaks to us by His Spirit working through the Word. And so we, we begin to get this spiritual strength. But it's all, it's all vertical. And that, I mean, we don't do a lot of serving one another unless you, you know, we move over to make room for somebody else or you gave them a hug or you, you know, encouraged them somehow. But mostly this is vertical time. You may have noticed last year we put out the new uh, the signage. So this is, we call this the worship center, vertical. We call that the discipleship center. That's where we're, we're growing and helping one another become disciples, followers, more like Christ. That's, that's what we are, are here for. Uh, between the first and last song, we aren't so much using our spiritual gifts, we're equipped to use our gifts. But we could become guilty of becoming spiritual consumers without being spiritual stewards. That's, that's the concern. Put it to use. We're holding arrows. I can't tell you how God wants to use you. There is such an individual plan. You, your gifts, experience, background, personality... It is so different, but it's so perfect for someone. For someone else to get a piece of the grace of God because you were the one administering or dispensing it. It's going to happen through relationships. Almost always it happens through relationships. It'll take more time. It'll take uh, pressing past your comfort zones. Maybe, the, maybe it's the introvert thing because you're the only introvert. But you'll experience the power of God. And you'll experience 
the, the kind of unclaimed goodness that you've never experienced before. Jehoash missed out on the unclaimed potential. He squandered the grace, the power of God. Verse 20. Elisha died and was buried. Uh, as we compare the end of Elisha's life to Elijah's, it doesn't really quite seem fair. I mean, Elijah got this painless, deathless, glorious escort to heaven. Elisha suffered with an illness and died, which is what most of us experience, right? But at the end of both lives, God did put a similar exclamation point. In fact, you could argue that Elisha's was far superior. While, chariot, while Elisha got a, Elijah got a chariot of fire escort, look at what Elisha gets. He gets a resurrection. Now Moabite raiders, middle of verse 20, now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders so that they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Whoa. Talk about scary. When he was dead, Elisha brought someone back to life. Some people read that and try to explain it away because it's even different than the other resurrection miracles. Uh, can't be, they say. Of course it can be. God's the one who has made oil not run dry and flour that replenishes itself and axe heads that have risen from the bottom of, a, of the Jordan River and poisonous stew that was healed and, and bread that fed more than it was supposed to and he had already raised two young boys, different boys, different stories, from the dead. Of course it can happen. The Moabite raiders, nasty neighbors to the southeast, what must have been a perennial problem of some kind. And this seems to be some kind of a common tomb. Elisha didn't even get his own tomb. But a common tomb, and I can't imagine that, what do they do? Do they, they, they roll the stone away, kind of like Jesus' time, right? And then they bring a body into this large tomb. And so they're in the process of honoring some friend or relative this way when someone yells, the raiders are coming, the raiders are coming, or something like that. And suddenly you don't worry about burial protocol. You just are trying to save your own life. And they toss the body in quickly. And when the body touches Elisha's bones, that man comes alive. A failed funeral. I've never blown a funeral. Imagine the shock, speechless, fear, joy, someone they knew. But whoever saw it, whoever heard about it in those days, and whoever reads about it now 2,800 years later, needs to understand very clearly it was 100% the power of God. And that seems to be why this story is part of this larger context. It's all God's power. It's not about Elisha. Elisha is dead and gone, and God's power surges on. As the news spread, maybe King Joash 
Jehoash heard about it and maybe realized what he was missing out on. Because if God could use a dead Elisha, he could use a living king. Elisha's bones had zero power, of course. So no one's going to say, oh, Elisha, he's amazing. (laughs) That one's not going to work. Everybody would know it was God. And if God can use Elisha after he's dead, how much could he use us while we're still alive? We might feel insecure and unqualified, run through the lists of those inadequacies that we we all see in ourselves. But we have to realize that God can use us if there was zero coming from us. He can use dead bones. Hmm. I was recently reading in John, I love John 15 especially, about Christ saying, I'm the vine and you are the branches. I'm the vine, you are the branches. So we get the picture, everything comes through Christ. If you remain or abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's zero apart from Christ. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, this, this has to be a two-way street, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. That's a promise. If you abide in him. What will you ask for if you're abiding in Christ? You'll be, abiding for things that, you'll be asking for things that Christ wants. So you don't have to qualify that a lot, except that you're going to ask for the kinds of things that you ask for when you're in a fellowship relationship with Christ. You did not choose me, Jesus said, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. That's, that's why I saved you. And that your fruit should last or remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. There are, there are unclaimed answers to prayer for fruit that lasts. Lasting here on earth, things that last in heaven. But God has given us the arrows. And he says, you got to abide in me. That's first. Before we leave Jehoash, uh, we encounter God's compassion once more, kind of a summary uh, statement now in verse 22. Haziel, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz. That's the previous king. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant so why, it wasn't because Jehoahaz, it wasn't because of Jehoash, but he had this grace, compassion, and concern because of his covenant or promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's, that's centuries and centuries previous. And to this day, he, God, has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. God just showed compassion. One of the surprising marks uh, of his compassion is in verse 25. Remember how he hit the ground three times? You know, if I was God, I'd say, well, if, you, if you're going to rescorn my grace, I'm, just, I'm not even going to give you those three victories, but he did. Verse 25, then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. God is so eager 
to keep his promises and to show his goodness. <clears throat> it's kind of humbling when you read this that God, to, to realize God blesses us sometimes in spite of us. The two kings in verse 22 and 25, Jehoaz and Jehoash, that we've studied, they didn't merit God's grace, compassion, and concern. But they were blessed because of promises to previous generations. Is it kind of humbling to think that we might be living on the answered prayers of our parents and grandparents or other people that have walked before us in the faith? We were kind of hoping it was us, weren't we? That's why God's blessing me. I'm actually doing some things right. Could be. Could be because of people who have gone before and God is keeping his promises. I even think as we meet here today, we are experiencing fruit that lasts from people who used to sit in these seats but are now in glory with Christ. Because they are the ones who prayed and, and taught and served and gave and organized and listened and engaged in all the, the one another's and bringing a meal and encouraging and are kind of on their shoulders and others will be on ours as well. So in 2022, what does God have for you? Right now in our summer schedule, starting today, right? We don't have the adult Bible fellowships and, and Sunday school. And frankly, uh, one of the main reasons we take the break during those summer months is so that the uh, teachers and leaders, many who have been fully engaged in serving, can take a break so that they can be refreshed and hopefully come back to that or some other uh, ministry. So it, it kind of is, is kind of all on us. How are we going to be stewards of that grace of God to others this summer? Or is summer like all about us? And what about the fall? What would be different this fall for you in engaging with the body of Christ, your gifts, uh, engaging in the community, serving others in your circle of influence, what would be different about the fall of 2022 because you realize that God has handed you arrows and you want to be a, a faithful steward of his goodness? It's a bigger deal than $26 million. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are entrusted amazingly with uh, the spiritual capacity. You, you came, came to live within us by the Holy Spirit so that we could partake in the divine nature and escape this corrupt world. Oh Lord, help us uh, where it seems safer to uh, lob our accusations at our evil world to please see with honesty where that world is influencing us and realize the victory that you have promised is that victory within that we would be like you and then because we are more like you as believers as, as, as stewards of the spiritual gifts you give us that we now can influence and uh, serve others 
give us wisdom, uh, give us courage where uh, we have felt our inadequacies, give us a confidence that rests not in ourself or even uh, stories of, of things that haven't worked in the past, but give us grace and confidence to go forward expecting that your Spirit's going to be uh, faithful to us in new ways. Forgive us where we have been in those cycles of, uh, of sin and repentance and uh, insincerity. But Lord, we want to grow in holiness that you would smile and, and sh- that we would realize that you would be the one who has given us all that progress. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.